Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. Welcome back to Deepen Podcast. If the tomb is empty, we are on week three, Mount Carmel. Are you still holding on to that idol? This is going to be a good one. In the worst kind of way. <laughs> uh, this sermon did a number on me, I have to say. So I hope we can get to all the things I want to talk about. But let's start, as we do, with the title. Mount Carmel, Will are you still holding on to that idol? What does that mean? Well, the nation of Israel. What's interesting about this, when, when Elijah calls out the 850 prophets, you know, of Baal and Ashtara. Um, it is, it's the Israelites that have been following these prophets. God tells Elijah to turn off the rain. He turns it off for three and a half years. And when it quits raining, God's people start turning to these idols, to these little G gods. And so one of the questions you got to ask yourself is, when, when God's not giving you what you want, where do you turn? Do you trust him? Mm-hmm. Because back then there was a God for everything. Mm-hmm. You wanted a baby, there was a fertility God. If you needed corn, there was a corn God. Baal was actually the God of lightning and thunder. And so a part of the reason that they are worshiping Baal is because he was the one that they thought would bring the rain. All right. So on Sunday morning at 11.22, during the second song, everybody feels real good about worshiping the Lord. But what about like when the lawn won't go through on Wednesday at 11? Who are you worshiping then? Or what about you've been single for a long time and the loneliness begins to take over? Do you really believe Jesus' promise in the Great Commission that I will be with you always? Mm. Like, what is it about us that doesn't want to let go of the idols in our life? Just a light topic. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I love this quote from your book. You you say, he loves us enough to strip away anything comfortable, anything that we rely on rather than him, so that we look to him and him alone. Which again, I just feel like you have these statements in the book that at face value, you kind of go past, and then you reread it, and you're like, this is actually going to change everything about everything that I do. Because we're talking about the things that I've always gone to, my natural fleshly instincts were saying, no, 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 what if God is stripping all of that away so that you can see him? Yeah, that he would love you enough to free you of the things that keep you from him. Why is it so easy for us to turn to why, the fleshly instincts, the little G-gods as you call them? Why is it so easy for us? So Calvin, that's John Calvin, not like Calvin and Hobbes because I know we have a diverse crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that our hearts are idol-making factories. So a part of the fallen human condition is that, man, we are suckers for that instant gratification. And that new vehicle that you can't afford with the new car smell does a temporary thing in you Mm. that you may have to wait on for the Lord to teach you the secret of being content in all situations. One is here and now, and one you have to trust and wait on. And so we're a sucker for the here and now. We're a sucker for the instant. Everything's today, next day, prime, one click. That's the world we live in. Microwave. When's the last time you cooked a potato? 
like old school in an oven. One hour. Gretchen was cooking One potatoes hour, the other literally. day. <clears throat> I'm doing steaks, so we're trying to time this thing up, right? I'm doing steaks. How long do you need? I can tell her exactly because the grill hits the number. I put it on this side, flip it. So <clears throat> she's like, all right, well, I'm going to do potatoes. <laughs> I walk in there, and we just have this conversation. We're like, how long does it take to cook a potato? Because you do it in the microwave now, so it's like a minute. <clears throat> and it's over an hour, and we were just standing there like, what did our families do <laughs> when we had to wait on a potato? All right. So we're talking about a potato. Take that times a bazillion, and we are just drawn like a moth to the flame mm. to the instant gratification that this world offers. That's right. Anything you'd add, Charles? You raised your hand No, there. I was the instant. As guilty. <laughs> click. Yeah, I'm guilty. But the, the, we have this instant gratification thing, and I, you know, Scripture says the Lord is producing in us something more valuable than gold, and that is our mm. faith. And he, I, I think you see this in the acts of the apostles and the folks who followed Jesus. He, once they got the belief thing sort of in their bones, belief then became faith. And then when they acted on their faith, their lives became lives of faithfulness. Mm. And I don't know, I see the Lord doing this with us as he strips away the things that make us comfortable, the things that we want to go to. It causes us to lean on him creating in us faithfulness so that we don't walk by sight, but we do, in fact, walk by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Something in there. So do you think it's worse now because we do have so much more at our fingertips? Is it, I just say harder for us, because I know every generation pretty much struggles with the same thing, but it's almost like we're our own worst enemy right now because you have Amazon Prime, like you said, microwaves. Like we have social media, all these things. Is that what's is that does that make it harder for people for such a time as this in our culture today? I think uh, so. The enemy is a few thousand years older, with a few thousand years more experience mm -hmm. in tricking his enemies, which are us. And it, it seems like the idols of the Old Testament were way more blatant. Yeah. Like, if I walked into your house and you had little carved mm. fertility goddesses up on your mantle, I could say, hey, Charles, what are y'all doing, man? <laughs> and he's like, well, we're trying to get a baby, right? Okay. Right. <clears throat> well, today, now it's just a flat screen with the images that come on it. Yeah. And there's a lot of surface idols, sex, drug, rock and roll, that kind of stuff. Those are easy to identify. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about the deep idols, mm. like power, comfort, control, and romance. He says, fundamentally, those are the deep mm. idols. And that ultimately, you got to think about this in, in the heavenly realms, not just the physical, that the reason that you go to Amazon, what you got to pay attention to there, is there anything wrong with Amazon? No. But is it about your comfort? Is it about control? Like, why do you, when you click on that button, mm. it kind of zings you a little bit in the positive way it makes you and then you can't wait for the thing to get there like mm. what is it that you're looking for in this thing that you need to be looking for in the one that created all the things and idolatry is whenever we whenever our worship terminates on some created thing that's what idolatry is mm. so there's nothing wrong like a, like good food man is good food wrong it depends 
if you worship it, it is. If you if it terminates on the food, you get things like either a either a eating disorder or gluttony, right? If that's mm-hmm. if that's all you are into. And God gave us that good thing so that it would stir worship in us, and we would praise God for the giver of the good thing, not be hung up on the thing. That's what idolatry is. Anything that competes for the worthiness of the one true God is an idol in our life. It's good. Uh, you gave a sermon on this part of, of um, the story of Elijah one time all about the brook drying up. And it was a really incredible teaching. And so can you just talk a little bit about um, maybe what's the time you had a brook dry up? What does that mean? I, I know you cover it a little bit in the book and the sermon, but yeah. but talk to us a little bit more about that. So interestingly, God tells Elijah, turn off the water. He prays, the water turns off. And then God tells Elijah to go to this brook, Bashan. And so Elijah does what he says. Then God provides for Elijah there. Ravens are bringing him meat and bread. It's like the original Grubhub, bro. Just, (laughs) right? Chicken minis every morning. This is great. And sometimes... We think that, um, I think we talked about this last week, you don't do what God told you to do. You do what God is telling right. you. So he was obedient. He, he was doing the thing. He's at the brook. God's taking care of him. And then it, just in the Bible, this short, it says, and the brook dried up. And sometimes, not by anything that you've done, sometimes you're trying to be obedient and walk faithfully, man, and the brook dries up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in ministry Gretchen and I get married. I'm working for this guy, Dr. Bill Ross, great man. He was my pastor. He moves from Roanoke, Virginia, where Gretchen and I met and got married, and we were having a blast doing ministry there. <clears throat> he moves to Athens, Georgia, and asks us to come with him. And so we come, and we meet the little search committee, and they were great. It's like four people. Well, those were the only four people that I could find, basically, other than... Pastor Bill Ross, that that believed the gospel and wanted to reach people. This was not a good fit for me. Honestly, it was a theologically liberal church. It was a bunch of UGA professors that believed like universalism and did not believe in the authority of the Word of God. And Dr. Ross was trying to like revitalize, recover this church, asked me to come with him. Okay. So I, I feel like I did what God told me to do to go there. Did a bunch of student ministry, college ministry, all of that. But that season of ministry, the brook just dried up. Honestly, Gretchen and I, Gretchen said to me, There's, if we have babies, we can't raise them in this church, but, you know, because of like just the, the air that was there. Well, I thought maybe my whole season of ministry in total was over, man. I mean, a real like crisis of calling. Was that just for a season? <clears throat> and I had two sweet job opportunities to make some money. And um, in that moment, it was important for me to not put my faith in the brook, but to put my faith in the God who told me to go sit by that brook, Mm -hmm. but when that dried up, to do the next thing. So I didn't know the next thing would eventually be 1122. Mm -hmm. Just like Elijah doesn't know, he's got two really big next things on the horizon there. He's going to bump into a widow who's going to lose a son, and he's going to resurrect the son Really big deal after he does this miracle feeding thing. And he's going to have a showdown with Jezebel and 850 prophets. And so if he stays where he was, he'll never be able to walk into what God has for him. 
Okay. That's really good. Anything you want to comment on? Have you ever had a brook dry up? I was working on my, can I, can I tell you from my experience? Yeah. All right. I was working on my 12th book and I'd never, I'd, I'd always thought writer's, writer's block was kind of a thing that, you know, I just, other people had, I, ne I never really had it. And I get about a third of the way into what would later become a book I wrote called Long Way Gone. And I had written myself into a hole and I could not find my way out. And so in my, our process in the morning was we'd get the kids to school and I'd get up early and work and then the kids would get up and then we'd get them to school and then I'd come home and sit down on my computer. And Christy, you know, she's around doing stuff, helping the kids and whatnot. And, and, but she would, she would watch me because I usually work in some, sort of a chair with a lap desk. And she began watching me over a number of days and I would just sort of sit there and stare at my computer because I couldn't figure my way out of And every rabbit trail I went down in my head took me to another dead end road. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm under contract and I, I, I've got a mortgage and I got kids in school and groceries and, you know, car payment. And this goes on for weeks. And I it's literally after about three weeks, Christy sticks her hand. I haven't written a single word in three weeks. I've just been sitting there staring at my computer. And Christy pokes her head out of the corner and says, honey, do you have a plan B? <laughs> I'm like, I don't have a plan B, honey. I, we've always, this is, this is plan my plan. I got so tired of sitting there after almost a month that I got up and like my brook had dried up, whatever creative thing the Lord had put in me that was not there. Mm. And I grabbed my Bible and we had, we had put in a pool, which was another thing. I was making payments on a pool. And I began just walking laps around my pool and I would take the Psalms and I would just read them out loud. And the thing that I, the thing that was the Lord was stirring in me was this, you know, and we'll get to it. How long will you limp between these two opinions? And I was tempted to look at my circumstances, my writer's block, and be anxious and fearful. And trust me, I had, I mean, you know, I'm beginning, I'm having conversations with my agent about having return advance money. And, but I just kept walking around the pool saying, Lord, my circumstances don't dictate the goodness of you. I know what your word says. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will call upon you. You will deliver me and I will glorify you. But my circumstances said none of that. Mm. Same thing with, Pete, with Peter on, on the mount, Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ. Nothing around, his, or nothing around him, his circumstances did not speak to the truth that is Jesus. It's six days later that he gets the revelation on the mountain of who Jesus really is, the Son of God. But I'm walking around and just I continue just making these proclamations out of my mouth. This goes on for three weeks. I'm, I don't know how many hundreds of times I walked around my pool. And eventually, I just got tired of reading. I put, my, I put my Bible down, and I just began walking around my pool deck. I'm like, I'm, this is it. I'm either going to write or I'm not. And I, you're talking about surrender. I'm like, Lord, you want, you want my writing? All right, then you got to show me what else to do. But I'm going to walk around this pool deck, and I'm going to praise you because you are, you are good. You are my king. You are Lord. And my, what I've got, what I'm experiencing, even though it is really really bad it says nothing about you and your 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 love of me and your care for me and um 6 weeks after maybe 7 weeks i mean i've had i'm i'm i've now gotten extensions on a contract and my agents and talks with my publisher and it's you know it, 
These are not good places to be. I had a thought one day walking around my pool deck. Christy has like she's quit talking to me about books because I got no answer for anything. We're not. I'm not answering my father-in-law's phone calls because I got no answer for him. <laughs> and I had, an, I had a thought I had not had. I'm like, hmm. I walked inside. On a good day, I might write 500 to 1,000 words. I used to write more, but maybe my best day, I've written 2,500, 3,000 words. I came in and I sat down and uh, I didn't close my computer until I'd written 10,000 words. Wow. And at one point, I just had to quit typing because the reality had hit me that the Lord had the workaround the entire time. Mm. But he just needed me. He just needed my heart. It was, you know, it goes back to, will you lay down your Isaac in order to pick up your cross? And I, maybe the Lord needed to make sure that I'd still lay down this writing thing. And he, he, was, he's, he may do it again. I don't know. But my brook had dried up. And I just know that I, he had to get me to a place or he created circumstances that got me to a place where I was willing to praise him regardless of the absolute poop storm in my professional life. That's really good. Pastor Joby, you talk often about praying a prayer for our church. I pray that God would bless you or break you, whatever it takes to draw you close to him. And I'm, I mean, this is what we're talking about. And you talk about it in the book too. Tell us where did that prayer come from and and why you pray it? It's a mixture of um, the the parable of the pearl of great, of great price and um, what J.I. Packer says when he says, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people and will bring them both joy or sorrow, whatever it takes to release our grip from the things of this world mm-hmm. to grab onto him. Mm-hmm. Because... I mean, ultimately, the reason I exist for the glory of God and my job is to be used by God as his servant to help our people be conformed into the manner of the likeness of Jesus Christ. So whatever it takes to get there is worth it. Mm. I would prefer blessing, (laughs) that God would bless us to the point where we're overwhelmed with gratitude and we're the five-talent servant, and we've made five-talent more, and the master shows back up, and we say, here you go, and we hear good and faithful servant, and we're just like, that would be my preference, but I would rather if he's got to break us to get us there because the blessing, Israel never did good with blessing. They just never did good with blessing. They would turn it around on themselves, and then they would, um, instead of, worshiping God as image bearers. They would try to create God in their own image. So as we're talking about idols, and we talked about the deep idols, and there are some obvious ones that we go to, job, money. What are some of the sneakier idols that you may not even realize has a grip on you? For example, I'm a new mom, and I have found that a really, really sneaky idol is the idol of information. And that as I'm trying to navigate how to be the best mom I can be, my natural instinct more times than not is to research how to sleep longer or, you know, as one example, um, or what's best for my baby, X, Y, and Z, instead of going to God's word. So that's just one example. What are some that people might not even realize have a grip on them? But see, like even with that one, Allie, what you got to look at is you got to ask the question, why? 
So the Sons of Thunder, I guess in their mom, or maybe she says, boys, follow me, go to Jesus. And she said, Jesus, can I ask you something about my sons? Before she asked, he goes, what do you want? Mm. It's a real key question to ask when you're going on this information search. Like, what do you want? Mm -hmm. Is it control? Because it could be. And you're, uh, as scary as it sounds, you're not in control. God loves your, ma your baby more than you do. Are you, are you in search of peace? Peace will, peace will never be found in your circumstances. If your baby sleeps eight hours a night starting tonight, you, that ain't, it's, it's still not peace, man. That right. peace is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for validation to be the best mom as compared to everybody else? The key is, is to, you can't, like the thing is never the thing. Mm. There's always this deeper heart level gospel issue going on. And if you don't get down to the root of it, it's like mowing over the weeds. Mm. It'll look great. This is what a lot of church folks do, man. Sunday after Sunday, they mow over the weeds. They never get down to like the core of it and rip that weed out. And so that's why it's just popping up over and over and over. So <clears throat> for me, man, an idol is success. It's success. Not money, not, not any of that kind of stuff, but just I don't even really care if I'm hated or loved, I just don't want to be ignored. That's it. Mm. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, even if you hate all the things I say and you think the book's dumb or whatever, <laughs> as long as, like, you respect it. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, that's yeah. the thing. <clears throat> and so real quickly, if I am not careful, the thing that God called me to and gifted me for can be the very thing that I got wrapped up around instead of you want to be great, you serve. And I'm more concerned about the king than about what people think about me. You see, the enemy from the very he is more crafty than any other creature. That that means deceitful. He takes good gifts, like the Garden of Eden, and then he twists it. Did God really say? You got to pay attention to the twist. Hmm. That's good. You're both looking at me like you want my <laughs> you take on like that. You seem like you have something else to add. I, all right, I'll. <laughs> I've never told you this, but since it's just you and me here, <laughs> you and me and our friends, <laughs> you're talking about what idol, what good idol, what something, what's something good that can become an idol. About three years ago, you and I started talking about doing this in Israel. We're at a cafe. I can still see it. Britt's there. Christy's there. Y'all are kind of getting to know us. You know, you've, you've heard that I write and so we, we began having this conversation. And then about, I don't know, a year and a half or two years ago, it got like where you really said, hey, if you would be willing, I would really like to pursue this with you. And it was sort of a fish or cut bait kind of thing for me. And at this point, I'm 20 years into a career. And I mean, I've studied writing since, you know, a long time. And I have degrees and I've I've spent my entire adult life trying to craft and hone this thing the Lord gave me, which is this gift, to create what in writing circles we call my voice. And I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty comfortable in my voice. Mm. And 
it took a long time. Like I, even, you know, first book was The Dead Don't Dance, but even even then I'm still developing and on through, you know, Wrapped in Rain, When Crickets Cry, Maggie, Chasing Fireflies, all of that. I'm still developing my voice. Well, about eight books in, seven, eight books in, maybe I get to the mountain between us, whatever. My voice is pretty well defined. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm comfortable. When I sit down to write, it sounds like me. I don't have to work for it. Mm. And it's also something that I guard. So you're you're talking to me about doing this. I've only told Christy this. And I began having conversations with the Lord about like really, I mean, I got quiet with the Lord and I'm like, my my gift is, you know, I've said for a long time, Psalm 45 is a real thing for me. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer and it is my great desire to make your name known to the nations. Mm-hmm. That's like a thing I, that that mm-hmm. I want. Like when the Lord says, "You're going to be judged by your words," then judge me by those. Mm-hmm. And so then I can start getting quiet with Him about this whole thing. And I'm a little, you know, uncertain about can I can I make you sound like you on the page? But the thing I'm really wrestling with, if I'm honest, is this arrogant thing in me. I don't want to sacrifice my voice. And I'm praying about it one day, and I'm, I'm like, Lord, I've worked so hard. And I've, I've, I've honed my voice, and I just as plain as day. He said, is my spirit in you? Well, yes, Lord. And whose voice is it? Mm-hmm. And from from that moment on, it was like, yes, Lord, I will write whatever you want me to write. But it had I had to go to the place where I was willing to give him, and I don't want to make this about me, and I don't, I'm not perfect, I don't have the monopoly on this, and none of the BS that goes with that. I'm just saying that we started this thing talking about idols and what good thing can the enemy twist. And mm-hmm. for me as a writer whose identity is somehow in some ways wrapped up in I'm a writer, for the Lord to come along and tap me on the shoulder and say, well, you, you, you can trust me with that. You're going to give me that was a, was a moment was a hard mm-hmm. thing. And now on the other side of it, it's one of the most fun, one of the best things. One of the, I cannot imagine having said no, I, I cannot, I cannot believe that I even considered having said no. It's, it mean, I've, I've loved every minute of it. It's, it's, it's like pumped life into my life as a writer. So, yeah, the Lord did it with me. I didn't see it coming. But we'll just we'll just keep that between us. <laughs> yeah, no problem. It's interesting because you know, I had folks with their advice going this in this too, like what I should do in regards to a ghostwriter, whatever. I think we talked about it last week or the week before. I wanted to get Charles because of our friendship and and because of his talent. And I had some people, they were like, what if it doesn't sound like you? And I was resolved because there's a lot of people that actually hear the voice that comes like this thing. <clears throat> I was more concerned. I just pre-decided. I was more concerned about putting out a consistently helpful discipleship tool and I want to do this a bunch of times so as long as that was consistent even if 
Charles's voice took over, I, w- I just already pre-decided. And it was almost like before I get way down the road on this thing, there was one other decision that I made. And, man, you were a, you were a saint about this stuff. The publishers and stuff would talk about should your name even be on it. And you were like, I don't care. Don't even put my name on mm-hmm. it. It doesn't matter. And I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, here's what it, it matters to me. That word with, we had to fight like crazy for the word with. It's a weird thing. It is. Go find another book that says with. I don't, there's co-authors, but this isn't co-authoring because it's not like we sat down with a blank page and wrote this thing together. That's not what we did. I have that much content and I'm like, how do I say this in a book? Right. That's what it is. Okay. But I wanted everybody to know that your fingerprints are all over this too. And so the best thing we could come up with is what you see printed right there, Joby Martin with Charles Martin. They even got into like, this is going to be confusing because they're going to think you're brothers. And I'm like, well, oh, totally. we are. I don't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, well, we are somewhere. <laughs> but, but, but ultimately, I tell you, it's way easier to lay down a potential idol way before it grabs onto you. That's a good word. I do not primarily see myself as an author. I primarily see myself, hopefully, as a son of God, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. So it was easier for me to be like, whatever we think is best. Like, how, how, do, how, does, how do we do this with, like, the most authenticity? How do we get this into the most people's hands? What is the best version of this that we can do with these ideas of tracing God's grace from Mount Moriah to Mount Calvary? Right. All right. There are other things, though. If we walk down like the speaking road or the preaching road, or there's a bunch of those things where I can get all wrapped up in because mm-hmm. I can find my identity in there. So what I would highly encourage you to do, man, is on the, on the front end of it, try to lay a thing down before it ever gets hold really of you. Good. So Elijah asks, how long will you go limping between two opinions? It's a real key question in our walk. Are there two things that you're limping between? Or do we have the posture like, Isaiah, here I am, send me. That's what I want to be. I'm far from it, but that's where I want to be. Can we talk about, you you talk about this in the sermon, but um, the use of the word limp is very intentional. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can you expand upon what (laughs) what are all the implications of that? I love it so much. All right. So he asked that question, and then when they are worshiping, the, the, the Hebrew says they cry out to Baal from morning until noon, <laughs> and no one answers, no one responds. And the reason is because no one's there. <laughs> At best, this is a demon that they're worshiping. Mm-hmm. This is not a god. <clears throat> At worst, it's something they've made up in their head, and that's why there's no answer. And we should probably talk about Elijah mocking him, by the way. We should probably come back to that. So their answer to that is, all right, all day from 8 a.m. to 1230, no response. And somebody goes, I got an idea, dance harder. And so the kind of dancing that the, the Hebrew language describes would be like a limping, like a limping around in this weird kind of cultic dance thing. It literally means to rave on, right? And so when... Isaiah says, I mean, Elijah says, how long will you go limping between these two opinions? And then what they do is they limp before this false god. Because here's what an idol always demand. An idol demands sacrifice. Mm -hmm. 
they begin to cut themselves, mutilate their flesh. At the hour of oblation, they're bleeding. That is what an idol will require of you. It will require you to mutilate yourself, to cut yourself, to dance harder. There literally are some, probably some people that struggle with cutting. There's idolatry there. Mm-hmm. Or if money is your idol, then you will cut out time with your family to chase money, or you will cut out your integrity to chase after money, or you'll mutilate your marriage to chase after money. An idol demands sacrifice. The crazy thing is, as believers, we don't have to mutilate our flesh to appease a God because God mutilated His Son for the appeasement of our sin that we could be known as sons and daughters of God. So then Elijah's going to cut on fire, wipe them all out. And then there's this little part at the end, man. This is how you know it happened. <clears throat> Elijah says, it hadn't rained in three and a half years. Elijah says, hey, Ahab, you might want to get out of here. We're going to get rained out. And he's like, what? He goes, yeah, man, I've been praying, pray seven times. See that little tiny cloud the size of a man's fist? It's going to be a thing in a minute. So Ahab gets on his chariot, and he starts to go. And then the Bible says that Elijah <laughs> has hiked up his robe, and he outruns the chariots back home. Think about this picture. <laughs> When you serve the little G gods of this world, man, you're going to limp around for the rest of your life, mutilating yourself, trying to appease a God that has lied to you and can't give you what it promised. But for those who wait upon the Lord, come on, man. So good. You will walk and not grow weary. You will run, man. You will mount up with wings like eagles, and you will outrun chariots. It is a picture of what it looks like to trust in the one true God. So good. There's so many things in this story event. So let's get to, let's, let's talk more about the whole thing. So we, we have the dancing, the limping, and let's touch on the mocking. Let's go back to it. Because I know, and this is one of your favorite things, and I just love this. Because it, it, this is one of those moments when you tell our people, I need you to read your, this, and your, this is actually in the Bible. Right. So let's talk about it. <laughs> I think I think <clears throat> I think there's two things you got to do with the imagination, the brain that God gave you to exalt Him even more. Okay, one is you should spend some significant time pondering upon the character and nature of God, mm-hmm. the vastness, the bigness. Charles and I were hunting together. We hunt a lot together. So I can't remember which one it was. I think we were maybe in Nebraska or maybe Texas, some some place we were hunting this year. And we're walking out to the Canaams to go to our stand, and there's not, there's, there's almost zero man-made light, and the stars are just, they look fake. They're so close and big and bright, and you know it's one of those mm-hmm. nights. And he just walks up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, "Can you believe?" I mean, I'm just getting my stuff to go hunting, <laughs> and he's like, "Brother, can you believe that the God?" that put every one of those in their place, calls them by name, and by the power of His presence holds them on their axis and in their solar system that they don't come crashing down upon us. That God knows our name. Okay, you you think big thoughts about God, that'll help you. Secondly, you need to think the most granular thoughts about the Scriptures. Surrender to the Lord, ask for a Spirit-inspired imagination and think about what Elijah's breath smelled like. Like, this is an event, man. Mm. And so <clears throat> Bible commentators are super smart, but I don't think they're good mockers. 
So when they're translating this from Hebrew, a lot of really religious people copied this and copied this and copied this, right? I mean, in my mind, this dude is like Duck Dynasty beard, lawn chair. Elijah, you're talking about. Je- yeah. Yes, jean uh, shorts with a tank top. Shorts. You know what I mean? I mean, put it in today. Think about right. the best mockers. Think about a good NASCAR fan. Think about Georgia, Florida weekend, whichever side you, you fall upon. Bro, right, man, just like mocking them. Yeah. All right. And here's why it matters. We live in a day and age now that says all ideas are equal. Mm. All ideas are not equal. Many ideas are dumb. A lot of them are dangerous Mm. and deserve to be mocked. They deserve for somebody to say, that's not right. That's evil. Now today, many people would say, no, 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 that's bigotry. Everybody's just got their own view. I'm just telling you. Um. When you live in a country that tells you how many babies you can have, that's evil. When you live in a country that says that they have cured Down syndrome by murdering all of the babies in utero that tested positive for Down syndrome, that should be mocked. Mm-hmm. When there are countries that that don't allow women to even show their face or be treated like a human, that's not just a cultural difference, man. That is a demonic spirit on a group of people. And some prophets of God got to look at that and go, that is wrong. Mm-hmm. In our culture, in our culture, when you think a human life is just reproductive health care, that deserves to be pointed at and a prophet of God says that is out of step. Mm-hmm with God's design and God's will, regardless of what you believe about the Bible and Jesus and all those things, there are some things about human dignity and image bearers of God being mistreated and some prophets of God need to look at that and make fun of it and do something about it. It's mm, good. Now, again, we live in a culture where there'll be a group of people who'll be like, I'm offended, I need to save space. You would have had a really tough time <laughs> with Elijah. <laughs> Facts. And maybe me. <laughs> maybe. Anything you'd add? I can't really add anything to that. <laughs> you don't want to add the uh, no more Duck Dynasty lawn chair commentary. Um, so he mocks them, and then it's it's his turn. It's yep. it's time for God to to show off. And I really love, and I had never heard this when the water when he pours the water out on the altar, and there's so many. There's so many details to it. The fact that they're in a drought and he's putting a ton of water on the altar, in some people's eyes, wasting it. And and you said this is an example of preeminence. So can you talk a little bit more about that, how that shows preeminence? <clears throat> so the little bit of water they have has been given from God. But, but Elijah is saying, but we can trust him with it all. The scarcity mentality does not believe that he's a good dad and he takes care of his kids. Mm. So he is saying, no, 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 man. When we bring to him our first and our best, and in a drought three and a half years in, what is first and best? Water. And he does it three times. Don't miss that. Digs a trench and pours it on, pours it on, pours it on. The other thing he is doing, I mean, he's just doing what God told him to do. But this is an impossible situation. Mm. So this other group has called down fire from heaven over and over and over. It doesn't work. And so it's not going to be enough for Elijah to hope that 
because there's a drought, the sun reflects off of a little quartz rock and right. slowly begins a burn drip on the bull. No, 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 no. It's doused in water. And then the only way this can happen is if God shows up. Mm. A question you may want to ask yourself is, when is the last time I've ever been in a situation where if God doesn't come through, there's no way this happens? There's so many people at our church that ask me, how come God doesn't do miracles anymore? Mm. To which, you know, I say he does. However, what if the miracle is just waiting on the other side of a step of obedience for you? Mm -hmm. I mean, what if that's it? I mean, every time I ask somebody to surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's an impossible situation. Mm. There's nothing I could say. There's nothing I could do. There's no convincing I can come up with that would save somebody. That that altar has been doused with water over and over and over, and unless God brings the fire, nothing's going to happen. Mm. You you'd say you you do you ask that question. What if God's miracle for you is on the other side of a step of faith? And I think in the book you you talk about this um, and how Gretchen played such a big part in when you when you've been in places where maybe you're struggling to have that faith to take that step of obedience. And so, can you talk a little about the significance of having people in your life who maybe when you can't Take that step on your own. Where is it important to have those people in your life? So it is for sure good to be surrounded by a band of brothers, but to the married men, there is no greater gift than a wife that believes in you and God's call in your life. Mm -hmm. Amen. I've heard you tell multiple stories about how your wife has been there for you. There's right. two major ones for me. One, when the brook dried up in Athens, and I thought about stepping out of ministry, it was Gretchen that put my resume on a headhunter kind of website that landed me, us, in Jacksonville Beach at Beach United Methodist Church. So good. If she didn't talk me into it, then I'm either doing like corporate coaching in Chicago right now or selling gravestones outside of Athens, Georgia. Secondly, when 1122, the service had outgrown Beach, and, it, and I knew that my time at Beach was done, the easiest thing for me to do would be take a preaching job at a big mega church somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we started getting those offers. I, I wanted to make disciples in Jacksonville, but, I mean, man, quite honestly, I didn't know if I had what it took to be a lead pastor. It's just a different responsibility. And sitting in at our kitchen table, we used to live in the woods, that neighborhood, mm -hmm. She just said, we felt like God called us here to make disciples. Give it a run. I got your back. She actually quoted Ruth. She said, <clears throat> it gets me every time. She said, your God's my God. Where you go, I go. Your people are my people. Where you, you are buried, I will be buried also. And the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And she was just like, I got you, babe. And I told her, I was like, hey, man, if this don't work, I'm going to be like working at Papa John's or something. Nothing wrong with Papa John's. It looks great. But I don't. I have no idea how we're going to do this. And she was like, I don't either, but we go, let's go. And so she was like this voice of faith. You know, when sometimes I think we need to 
sometimes when our faith seems really, really small, sometimes we got to borrow some other people's faith mm-hmm. around us. You know, when Paul talks about the shield of faith, and he's talking about Roman soldiers, mm-hmm. the only way those shields worked was when they would link together. And a part of the reason you fought side by side in the Roman army is if your brother got knocked down, then the brothers next to you would help pick you up. And Mm. she has been that for me. She's the best. No doubt. What about for you, Charles? 97, 98, I had uh, finished all my graduate stuff. I had worked in the business world for a couple years with my brother-in-law and who had mercy on me and gave me a job. (laughs) But... Some I was some I was offered a a job in corporate in the corporate world and and I I, I said no for a lot of reasons we can go into that later but Christy and I kind of took a flyer on my on the possibility that I might could write I had written a manuscript she had read it her response to me was I think it's better than a lot of what I read in Barnes and Noble and so when this big job thing came along and I told them no she, we, there was a reason which was this manuscript in there so we took about we printed the first 60 or 80 pages and this is pre-email so you're trying to get somebody to give you the time of day i printed the first 60 or 80 pages along with a cover letter we'd gotten the writer's handbook and i'd written down everybody's name and address and we sent over a hundred of those out to people all from california to new york and then over the next 14 16 months i um, I look, I look like an idiot to p- my family, my in-law, because I'm pressure washing, I'm building docks, I'm building decks. I've got a trailer behind my truck with a, my cell phone prominently printed on it with a pressure washer. And I'm just trying to do whatever I can do. And after about 14 months, I'm broke and I cannot pay the bills. I'm staring at my keyboard and I cannot pay the bills that are on my keyboard. And as the months had rolled on, these letters that we'd sent out, you also send a self-addressed stamped envelope because you want to hear back from the people. And I'd gotten 85 rejections back. And I'm sitting at my desk trying to figure out, I look like an idiot. I didn't take the business job. I don't have money. The hot water heater in the kitchen is broken. I know my wife, I'm thinking, I know my wife's not proud of me. It's pretty. It's a pretty low place, and I I quit going to the mailbox. I don't want to go to that stinking thing because every time I go down there, somebody tells me how they want that they don't want anything to do with me. And Christy walks in from the mailbox and lays a, a one more rejection letter on my keyboard and kisses me and says, "You're not a reject to me." And God had just given her a deposit of faith. You talk about leaning on other people's. God had given Christy a deposit of faith, not in me and my craft and my, none of that, but in him. Mm-hmm. And at our lowest, at our worst, at the absolute end of myself, my precious wife mm-hmm. walks in and doesn't condemn me, doesn't ask me what I'm going to do, doesn't. She just kisses me and says, you're not a reject to me. And I've, I've said this a bunch, but I didn't, you know, folks talk about, Joby's been really kind and talking about the awards and stuff and my books and all that. I did not get me here. I had, the Lord gave me Christy and gave Christy me. And we got here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, wasn't just me. But I thank God for that woman. You're talking about G quoting Ruth mm-hmm. when 
Christy and I married and she put this ring on my finger. She had it engraved on the inside of the on the inside of the band. So we married up and we definitely outpunted our coverage. <laughs> no doubt. If you're single right now, this is the kind of marriage you want. <laughs> it's true. This is it's so cool. Deposit of faith. I love that. Um, there's a quote in your book. It says Often the thing preventing us from stepping, the thing feeding our fear, is an idol we are unwilling to lay down. Which, whoa, that quote. How is idolatry the food of fear? Yeah, because um, <clears throat> fear is not a feeling. Paul tells Timothy that you have not been given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control or salmon. And man, if you were talking about idols, you're talking about worshiping something in the spirit realm that is not God. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the underlying spirit in those things is fear. It's control, it's comfort, it's power, it's romance. And at the core of that is this fear of, am I going to be okay if I'm not in power? Am I going to be okay if I'm not in control? Am I going to be okay if I don't have the romance I'm looking for? Am I going to be okay if I don't have the comforts to take care of me? And you put you at the center of that, and fear begins to breed and breed and breed and breed. Mm. And then the Bible says perfect love drives that thing out. So perfect love drives out fear, and a big part of the way perfect love drives out fear is it topples the idols in your heart. You can't just remove an idol. It has to be replaced. There's the expulsive power of the gospel that when you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look long to his wonderful face, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what you've got to do with an idol. When you don't focus your eyes on Jesus and you're focused on the little G gods of this world, listen, man, they promise things that they cannot deliver on. Then they take you down paths you don't want to go. You stay longer than you wanted to stay, and it costs you more than you ever dreamed it would. That's what an idol does to you. And all of those things are wrapped in fear. Again, the spirit of fear. And the problem with fear is that it paralyzes. Faith produces action, and fear paralyzes. Like limping between two opinions, Mm -hmm. as opposed to outrunning chariots, faith produces action. We did a, a sermon series, gosh, I don't know, four years ago now, called Smashing Idols. Uh-huh. Um, we had those epic videos of people just hitting with TVs with a baseball bat, just smashing. It was kind of epic. Um, so what do you say to the person who maybe they're listening, they're reading, they're sitting in our one of our campuses, and they want to smash their idol? What, what can you offer them? What do they do? <clears throat> well, um, John says, do not love this world or the things of the world, because all this world has to offer is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. There are, there, that's, that's it. That's what this enemy offers you. So the, the key is, is that you've got to pay attention to the things, the environments you're putting yourself in when it comes to lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, those kind of core idols. You've got to reject those things and do the things that 
focus your time, effort, love, attention on the one that drives those things away because ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of what you were looking for in the idol. So lust of the eyes. You want some stuff because you think it's going to satisfy? Well, the temporary stuff will never satisfy. But when you put your faith in him, you're a co-heir with him. That means all that he has is yours. Streets of gold, mansions. Read the description of heaven. And then in light of eternity, you realize that all this temporary trinkets just won't do it for you. Mm-hmm. Lust of the flesh, which is the desire of a feeling. How about the one that offered anybody weary, heavy burden? Come to me. I'll give you rest for your soul. Pride of life. You want to make a name for yourself? How about a son of the Most High King? That's a pretty big name. <laughs> the Bible says that some of us will rule over angels. You're going to be kind of a big deal. When you began to see that the thing that you really want is really found in him, then and only then can you not go after the idols. It's as simple as you ever go to the grocery store hungry? You make terrible decisions. (laughs) You do, man. You're like, have crunch. I haven't had that since I was a kid. And then you eat it and you're like, oh, it's because it makes my mouth bleed. That's why I didn't eat this. (laughs) (laughs) But when you go, but when you have a really delicious meal and then you go, you just get what you need. Mm, that's good. You need to consistently set the table with the Lord and feast on him. And the things of this world will not be nearly as appetizing. Mm. There are some things you need to go after directly. <clears throat> if greed and control is an idol in your life, write a big, fat, stinking check and give it away. Mm. You know? If, if comfort is an idol in your life, Sign up today and go on a mission trip for longer than you want to go. There are some things that you can directly attack these things. Elijah does not just get to the mountain and pray about it and be like, eh, you guys shouldn't do this. He says, put your idols in the middle of the place here. We're going to do It's a showdown. Right. Let's go. That's good. Anything you could add on rooting out idols? Most of his letters, anytime Paul would write a church, he begins by thanking God for them, for their faithfulness, their love, their whatever. By the time he gets to the Galatians, he skips thanking God altogether. And I, because they're a believing group of people, spirit-filled group of people, probably what we would call charismatic. And by the time he gets to chapter three, he says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was personally portrayed as crucified. These people saw the Son of God nailed to a cross personally. Then they saw him walk out of the tomb. Live, eat fish, talk, laugh, ascend off the Mount of Olives, disappear in uh, Haley's Comet. Two angels sitting there saying, why are you looking up at the sky? He's coming back same way they left. They saw it. Paul can't believe it. He's, he's, he's like incredulous. Who has be, Well, when he says who has bewitched you, there is a power at work directly opposing the kingdom of heaven. And it is hell bent on removing Jesus from center focus. Rather than us being focused on the cross, they had removed the cross from center. You were talking earlier about Moses, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must, must be lifted up, John 3. They had, they had removed the cross altogether and had removed their eyes from focusing on 
the love of the Son of God who dethroned or unclothed his, his royalty and did not think equality of God something to be grasped and ended up here in a gooey mess as a man. They had lost sight that that one did that for us in order to take us back to his father. Two things I think of often. One is, with this whole idea with, with regards to idols, something is actively at work to bewitch us. That is a power of witchcraft mm-hmm. at work on planet Earth, and it is very much real. Look at Simon the sorcerer. Yep. There is an active attack on us as believers by the kingdom of darkness, and the Lord has given us the authority and the power to speak and bind that strong man and tell it to go away. Secondly, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's right. And, and when, we, when we do do that, the things of this world grow amazingly dim. Mm-hmm. It is funny how that works. And Jesus gives this big fat warning, though. He's like, you bind up the strong man, kick him out, and don't replace him. Right. Seven more come in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is why the reformers talked about the expulsive power of the gospel. It's not just that you got to take the idol off the throne of your life. Jesus has to sit on the throne of your life because he's more beautiful than any idol this world Amen. has to offer. Amen. And man, you, you're talking about a spirit of demonic, a spirit of witchcraft. Anytime I talk about it at the church, and, and we'll spend more time on it in coming weeks, but people will ask me, all right, you really believe in demons? Man, you ever met anybody with an addiction? What you call it? There's a thing you promised you'd never do again, but you can't stop doing it. Right now in church, you don't want to do it at all, but a little later tonight, there's almost like a thing that's not you driving you to go to a place you don't want to go, and you know the end of the road is destruction. What do you think that is? Mm -hmm. You think that's just chemical? You think that's just poor decision-making? You think if we could just get everybody educated? Nah, man. There's an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But we have a good shepherd who's better. And what he wants to do is give us abundant life. That's better. He wants to show up and show out. <sighs> like he did. Like he did. <laughs> yeah. He he brings a fire. And I think, what does it say? He, it licks up even licks the dust. Licks up the dust. Mm-hmm. I love that. I didn't love even know that. dust could burn, man. That's cool. <laughs> so Elijah has this massive mountaintop experience. And one of the central themes woven throughout the book is, and and you talk about this, we have God's glory is seen on the mountaintop and then his grace and mercy in the valley. And we all kind of fall on the spectrum. We're somewhere. And Elijah has this massive mountaintop moment. And then immediately he is in a valley. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about how he gets there. I love just the humanity of it um, and, and, and how God meets him in that valley. So <clears throat> Jezebel hears about this, and then Jezebel puts a hit out on Elijah. All right. You know, it's interesting because at the church of Thyatira, the warning is, here's what I got against you. You tolerated Jezebel. Now, is he talking about an individual person? Well, Jezebel's been dead about, you know, 3,000 years, so it can't be that Jezebel. So it's where this this phrase, the spirit of Jezebel, c- could be a thing, right? 
You would think, based on the evidence that you just read, coming off the mountaintop experience, outrunning the chariot, calling down fire from heaven, killing 850 prophets of Baal, doing the thing, bro. You would think that Elijah would be like, come on, woman, bring it. And he doesn't. He's overwhelmed with fear. There's this spirit of Jezebel, this demonic attack. She is literally a worshiper of Baal. It's part of what her name means. Doesn't end well for her. Modern-day psychologists would say something like um, Elijah is either bipolar or he's. this is a serious bout of depression, mm-hmm. which I think is important to talk about. Obviously, Elijah is a man of God, and yet coming right off the mountaintop, I, I, let me warn us, we do it in the book a bunch, but... Right off the edge of a mountaintop, bro. On the other edge, the side of that, there's a valley below, and the enemy most often comes after us. Think about it. a high holy moment for Jesus is when he gets baptized. Eternally, he is in a perfect love relationship with his Father. And in that moment, before Jesus has done any ministry, Jesus gets baptized, and the heavens open up. God says it out loud. By the way, this is why it matters so much when you're dead. He says something good about you. <laughs> and he goes, Behold, my son, in whom I am well pleased. Right. He hadn't done anything yet. The next event, temptation. Right. Okay. Elijah comes off the mountaintop. Next thing he does, man, he goes and lays down under a tree and he says that he wants to die. He's having suicidal thoughts. So I've heard some Christians, some really misinformed Christians, say that a, that a Christian can't be depressed. Well, I would encourage them to look at the Scriptures. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane says, I am sorrowful even unto death. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? He feels like he's going to die. Mm-hmm. It's a really big deal. Um, this is why you can't put your faith in your circumstances. We almost always talk about that when it's going bad. But you also can't put your faith in your circumstances when it's going your way. It's good. When you're king prophet, the whole group of people starts shouting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Do you know how you say that in Hebrew? Eli, Jah, Eli, Jah, crazy. Crazy. (laughs) On the heels, the enemy shows up, man. And he's, Elijah's, actually he's going to lay there and die. And then some angels wake him up. And the Bible says bring him cake. Which I will, if you feel sad, go take a nap, get you some cake. And he says, meet me in this cave. And it's so beautiful. This picture of the gospel, the God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious children. And he doesn't come in and give him a little speech, a little, come on, Elijah. You've got this. You're good enough and you're smart enough. And if you just believe, that's not what he does, man. Fire, wind, earthquake, and God is not in the big event. We're addicted to the big event. That's right. And God meets him in this, it gets translated a bunch of different ways, in the still small ruach. Mm. That's what it says. Mm. Just like God breathed the breath of life into Adam. He, he, in this, in the most intimate way, God was nostril to nostril with Adam and breathed the Spirit of God into Adam. He opens his eyes, he becomes a living creature. 
than Elijah in his worst moment when he's running and hiding, full of fear. God meets him in that moment and speaks to him in a still small voice, in the still small whisper, in the still small breath of God. He comes after him. Why? Because he's his son. Mm-hmm. And that's what you do with your son. Anything you would like to add? No, I was just looking. Uh, you, you were talking about Elijah wrapping his garments around his legs. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's what Peter's, and I don't know the answer to this, and I'm asking. I wonder if that's what Peter, and I think it's Peter. I was just looking. I can't find it because I don't have my phone with me and I need to search. But <laughs> when Peter says, gird up your loins, it means to wrap your clothing around your legs so that you can run. I actually think he may be talking about fleeing sexual immorality, but I wonder if he's, if I wonder if that's painting a picture of that. I don't know. I don't either. Okay. We'll look it up. I love it. So, uh, I love that part where Elijah's in the cave and the earthquake comes and, the big events happen and he's not in those and he comes in the still small voice. And um, I love when you often talk about if when people say, I'm trying to hear from God, I can't hear from God. And you always lift up your Bible and say, he's talking, you just need to read it. Um, and so what would you say to those, to people who maybe they're looking for him in these big events but missing it. What, just can you offer some encouragement to the, that group of people? Yeah, because what you're looking for is him, right? You're not looking for the event. You're not even looking for what he can do in your life. Those things are secondary. And I'm pro-event, man. I am. I love those events that stir my affections for the Lord. But he's not in the song. He's not in the sermon. He's actually... Here's the crazy thing. We have... Sometimes people will have this propensity to look back and be like, I wish I was like Elijah, could make a meal that would last forever and bring back a dead boy from the grave and call down fire from heaven and God would speak to me in a cave. You have such an advantage over Elijah mm-hmm. because when the New Testament, the post-resurrection Christian feels depressed and goes running in the cave, the Spirit of God inside of you is in the cave in you, not even just with you. It's better than with you. The we as believers don't have to look for him in the wind and the earthquake. We have to look. The Spirit of God is in us because you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Did you not know your body is the temple of the Most High God? So lean in. Lean in. Open his word. Pray. Lean in. And you're not looking for a feeling. But the... The God of the universe promises if we will draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Jesus promises if you abide in my word, I will abide in you. Pay attention to that. Mm. Here's something that does it for me. I don't know if this is a preacher thing or like just a, I'm on, you know, I don't know what it is. When I'm reading my Bible and I read over something that I've read 10 million times, and I'm usually sitting up here in the woods with just me and my Bible, no commentaries, nothing like that. And I see a thing in the scriptures that I've never known before, but somehow this time I know it. I think it's evidence of his grace. Who taught me that? Jesus said, it's going to be better if I leave. Mm -hmm. 
because I'm going to send the helper, the paraclete. I love that Greek word, mm. paraclete, like a paraclete's. Keeps you rooted in the ground, rooted in the word, helps you change direction. You know, I love that. Okay. <clears throat> and he says one of the things that the paraclete, the helper, is going to do is he is going to teach you or remind you of everything I have taught you. If you've ever learned anything from my sermon, from this book, from a Charles Martin book, from the Bible, it's because the Spirit of God in you taught you that. Every believer takes the Spirit of God wherever they go because he's in us. He's deposited in us. But our problem is, this is we don't ever like lean into him. Mm. So quit trying to lean into the experience and lean into him. That's good. Because we're experience Jumpers. hungry. Yeah, for sure. Well, even in our own lives, we're experientially rich and relationally poor. Mm. I mean, I, just, I think about the experiences my kids get versus what we got. I mean, my kids have been all over the world and they have all these cool trips and all that kind of stuff. We just played in the road, but we had nobody else but people. So I feel like our relationships were richer, our experiences were poorer. You could do the same thing with the Lord. At our church, it could be a real problem. You could show up and it's so stinking good. The music is so good. The lights, the sound, the prayers, the mm-hmm. videos, you know what I mean? That you could think, that's what I'm here for. That's not what you're there for. You're there to stir up the Spirit of God in you. So good. So, obviously, the only theme of this book is pointing to the empty tomb, which, spoiler alert, (laughs) it's happening. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We're four weeks away from it. Um, How does Mount Carmel and this story of Elijah, how does it point to Jesus? Well, what's interesting is that uh, Jesus and the disciples are, I think they go to Samaria, share the gospel, and they're rejected. And the disciples say, they reference this event. They say, Jesus, call down fire from heaven on these people. And Jesus basically goes, there will be a fire of judgment called down, but I'm the bull on the altar that will be consumed by the judgment of God so that you will no longer glint between two idols, but that you can run in a freedom because I purchased that freedom for you. See, everything points to the cross. One of the, just a little Bible study hack here. Always do your best to use the Bible as commentary unto itself. Before you go look to see what, everybody else thinks it means first and foremost see if there's some other part in the scriptures i mean so when jesus has an opinion on something that happened in the old testament you want to go with jesus's opinion (laughs) before you get out any other famous preachers commentaries or whatever (laughs) and so that's what jesus ultimately is saying about this event that event was a precursor of what jesus was going to do any, any final thoughts you had? Well, they ask him, like, you, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Because they're thinking that's what the power of the kingdom of God looks like. And they, he's about to really flip it on their heads mm-hmm. for them. They, you know, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He probably had a better idea at that point than they did because they're still thinking that power is a power to take on Rome and to conquer this the, the earthly kingdoms that we see, and yet Jesus is resurrected. He, the, the, one of the first things out of his mouth is, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. 
if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And he's talking about the power that's resonant within the kingdom of heaven and how it's so upside down. We've been in this series, Upside Down Kingdom, which I've loved, but it's the kingdom of heaven doesn't do power like the earth does mm -hmm. power. And I think he's starting to show them that. They, they begin to get it in Acts, somewhere starting about maybe Acts 2 with Peter, maybe giving the second best sermon ever on the southern steps of the temple, Pentecost. Fire falls down then. But they they walk it out and the, the, they begin to understand what power the Lord has put in their hands uh, to the extent that they all die for him. Save John. And they tried to boil John and oil didn't work, so they put him on an, put him on an island, told him to shut up, and he wouldn't do that either. <laughs> so then he wrote the book of Revelation. Right. Don't you think that the reason John wasn't allowed to be martyred is because Jesus told him to take care of his mom? That's what I think. Total speculation on my part, but again, <laughs> woman, behold your son, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And so he gave him a job to do. And God's never going to take you out until the job he's given you to do is done. That's good. So the fact that the empty tomb and the alarm clock, to me, are empirical evidence that God ain't done with you or me or anybody else listening. Come on. With that, we'll close our time together. Great. And everyone's just sitting there now listening like, uh, what? What do I do? Um, will you pray for everyone yeah, yeah. listening? <clears throat> Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for the folks listening right now, for all of us, that when we face impossible situations, when we feel like at work, at school, in our neighborhoods, in our families, God, sometimes it feels like we're facing down 850 false prophets, that we're the only one that believes in you. God, I pray that in those impossible situations that you are perfectly positioned to display mm -hmm. your power. Lord, I pray for the man, the woman, the student right now that feels like they're in that cave. Lord, I pray that you would go after them, that you would let them know that you love them, not because of the great things they have done up on Mount Carmel, but because you are theirs. God, would you speak to us in your still, small ruach? Mm -hmm in those deep, deep places. Spirit of God, would you be stirred up in us so that we would know that you are our God and that we are your children. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week for week four.